episode 87 of the State of the Old Republic podcast was originally recorded on October 3rd, 2018. It's the State of the Old Republic podcast. This week on the show, Game Update 593 marks the end of the Summer Swotor 2018. I'll take a look back at a couple of recent Summers of Swotor to see how they all compare. Also this week, Tier 5 gear is coming to the game soon, and it's crafted only. Is this a good idea, a terrible idea? What about PvP? I'll share my thoughts later in the show. And finally this week, I return to my story project where I cover the events happening on the prison planet of Belsavis. And with that, it's time to make the jump to light speed and check out the State of the Old Republic. Welcome to episode 87 of the State of the Old Republic podcast. I'm your host, Ted, and as you heard in the opening, I have another great show lined up for you today. The big news this week is that Game Update 593 is now live. It was supposed to go live on September 26th, but was delayed a week due to some issues that BioWare wanted to correct. The main feature is the new Hutball Warzone on the planet Vanden. If you're not into PvP or you're not into Hutball, 593 doesn't have much to offer you. You're probably more excited about the double XP event that begins on October 9th. Even though it's now fall, Game Update 593 wraps up the summer of SWOTOR 2018, and I thought this would be a good opportunity to take a look at the last couple of SWOTOR summers and see how they compare. We begin with the summer of Swotor 2016, which was a really good summer for Star Wars The Old Republic. There were three major updates, all focused on the Knights of the Fallen Empire story, returning companions, and quality of life improvements. Bioware also introduced the Dark vs. Light event. It all kicked off on June 12, 2016, with game update 4.5, Mandalore's Revenge. It included Chapter 14 of Knights of the Fallen Empire, where we return to the planet Darvanus to team up with Shea Vizsla and the Mandalorians to take on the Eternal Empire. Game Update 4.5 also saw the return of Brunemark and introduced new legacy perks to add a legacy cargo hold and item modification station to your starship. An additional storage tab was added for purchase in the legacy cargo hold as well. Then later that month, on June 28th, Game Update 4.6 was released, it included Knights of the Fallen Empire Chapter 15, The Gemini Deception. It also had a few neat legacy perks in the form of portable cargo and legacy cargo holds. I use those all the time. It also added a perk to reduce the time it takes to give gifts to a companion. While I typically get this perk on all of my tunes, I felt that this should have been a baseline change to that ability and not a credit sink. Well played, Bioware. Game Update 4.6 also marked the start of the Dark vs. Light event. Initially, this was met with mixed reviews. The main issue was that you could only participate with newly created tunes. If you recall, the event required you to play the game in almost its entirety. You had to level tunes, complete various operations and flashpoints, you had to PvP, and I believe you had to craft as well. 
There were different tiers for the event, each one offering cool rewards, the best being the Victorious Pioneer's Armor Set, which granted a 25% bonus to XP, which stacked with other XP bonuses. Players fought for the light or the dark, and whichever side won determined which companion everyone would receive, Master Ranos for the light and Darth Hexed for the dark. Of course, the light won, and we got Master Ranos. As the event wore on, and it lasted well beyond summer, I think players warmed up to it. You see, prior to Knights of the Fallen Empire, old content like Heroic Areas and even Eternity Vault and Karaga's Palace were just that. Old content that max-level players overpowered and just ran for fun or not at all. Knights of the Fallen Empire turned them into endgame content once again and really introduced the idea that we're supposed to run all of the existing content at endgame, something that was reinforced with Galactic Command. While the Dark vs. Light event received a cool reception initially, I think it was a very successful event and one that I wouldn't mind seeing come back in the future. The Summer Swole Tour 2016 wrapped up on August 9th with Game Update 4.7. It featured the final chapter of Knights of the Fallen Empire, The Battle for Odessin, where we confronted Prince Arkin for one final showdown. This isn't about you. It never has been. But I will do whatever it takes to destroy my father. Game Update 4.6 also saw the return of Gus Tuno, everyone's favorite Jedi Academy dropout. Overall, the Summer SWOTOR 2016 was strong and there was a lot going on to keep us busy and logging in every day. Fast forward now a year later to the summer of SWOTOR 2017 and things kicked off with a fairly minor update. Game Update 5.2.2, Narshada Summer, went live on June 13th. The big feature was the return of the nightlife event with all new rewards, including the Gamorrean Guard Companion. Things were quiet until July 11th when Game Update 5.3, Sisters of Carnage, was released. Sisters of Carnage, of course, refers to Avela and Esne, the second boss in the Gods from the Machine operation, which was now operational. Did you really just say that? Let it go, Theron. Thank you, Lana. It also gave us a new stronghold on the watery world of Banan. Game Update 5.3 also marked the beginning of some much-needed class balance changes. The Summer Tour 2017 concluded on August 22nd with Game Update 5.4, Crisis on Umbara. The main feature was the continuation of the Iocath storyline and the reveal of the traitor in our midst. They're gone. That's impossible. According to the signal, they're still on the convoy. No! There? It's over, Commander. The story was told via a new flashpoint. It had its own currency and vendor loaded with new items, including mounts, decorations, and access to a new stronghold, the Umbara Mobile Base, a moving train. 5.4 also marked the beginning of Ranked Season 9. All in all, the Summer Swotor 2017 started off a little slow, but finished strong in July and August. Which brings us now to the Summer of Swotor 2018. It started a little early with the release of Game Update 591, which was really just the return of the Nightlife event, only this time nothing new was added. 
The next update was 592, which went live on August 7th. It included the Reese Stronghold, the Mandalorian Battle Ring Arena, and all of the Warzone and matchmaking changes. And that was it. And while that wasn't small, there was little in the way of new content. No story, no returning companions. The PvP changes were mostly systemic. That's not to say they weren't significant, but if you're not into PvP, the Summer Swotor 2018 had very little to offer you. Now, part of the reason why 592 came out in August and not July was because Bioware began releasing these updates on the PTS, something they plan to do moving forward. As we look back on summers of SWOTOR's past, I think it's clear that since 4.0, there has been a steady decline in the amount of content that Bioware has released. As to why that is, skeptics will claim the game is dying. I'm not so pessimistic, and I attribute it to an ongoing shift away from what was planned with Knights of the Fallen Empire and back to producing more group content and traditional expansions like Shadow of Revan. There's no question we'll be playing Star Wars The Old Republic during the summer of 2019. Let's hope it will see a return to multiple major updates and a reason to log on every day. The summer of SWOTOR 2018 was light on content, but that doesn't mean the game is dead. Game Update 510 Jedi Under Siege is coming later this year. It has a new story, returning companions, a new daily area, and a new tier of gear. We still don't know much about this new gear other than it will come solely from crafting. Now I'm all for crew skills having a role in allowing players to gear up, but I don't know if crew skills as the only way to obtain the best gear is the best idea. So let's break this down and talk about why having tier 5 gear come only from crew skills is problematic. And let's start with the fact that tier 5 is both PvE and PvP gear. If the materials and schematics needed to craft this gear can be acquired from both PvE and PvP, then I think things might be okay. Right now, it is believed that the schematics and materials to make the new gear will come from Master Mode Gods from the Machine and the new Daily Area. While people who PvP will likely play the story and unlock the daily area, there's no guarantee they'll also be running Master Mode Gods from the Machine. A lot of PvE players won't be doing that. Players who run Master Mode Gods from the Machine and play ranked PvP could find themselves with a distinct advantage if they have Tier 5 gear and their opponents don't. That said, I wouldn't expect many groups to clear Master Mode Gods and have the place on farm anytime soon. It could be a while before Gods from the Machine becomes a treasure trove of materials for people looking to craft this gear. This means that acquiring the gear could take a long time, maybe too long. Keep in mind, this gear is disposable. Whenever the next expansion comes, there's a good chance that there will be an increase to the level cap and a gear reset. The lifespan of Tier 5 gear is uncertain, and depending on how long it takes to craft a set, it may not be worth it. If it takes an ops group a long time to acquire the gear for themselves, and they'll probably want to do that first, it could be a long while before they unleash it to the masses on the GTN. 
When that does happen, you can bet it's going to be expensive. It all depends on what we'll be crafting. Will we make whole pieces of gear with built-in stats that we can't mod? Or will we be crafting armorings, mods, and enhancements? If that's the case, what about our set bonuses? Will we be crafting separate armorings for each advanced class? The downside of making a piece of gear that you can't mod is you can't min-max your stats. Unless the gear comes optimized, your new set will be imperfect. The downside to crafting armorings, mods, and enhancements is that it's a lot of pieces that you need to acquire. That's 9 mods, 7 enhancements, 7 or 8 armorings, and then barrels and hilts. No matter what we craft, buying the gear off the GTN is probably cost prohibitive for a majority of players. It's too soon to pass judgment on whether or not crafted tier 5 will work out. We need to get more details on what we'll be crafting and how it will be obtained. That information is definitely forthcoming, but the information we have now raises a big red flag. Last bit of SWOTOR news for the day, BioWare will be holding a Cantina live stream on Thursday, October 11th at 3pm Pacific Time over on Twitch TV. I'll let you figure out what time it starts wherever you live, but for me, that's 6pm. They will be talking about Game Update 510, Jedi Under Siege, where they will reveal which planet we'll be able to explore in the new storyline, we'll get a spoiler-free overview of the new Empire vs. Republic storyline, And spoiler alert, we will meet some of the new and returning characters, including companions that we can expect to run into. We will learn what challenges await in Master Mode Gods from the Machine and how we can acquire the newest tier of gear. They will also talk through some of the great guild changes coming, including guild leveling, heraldry, PvP challenges, and various quality of life changes. Not only that, but Eric and Charles will be joined by members of the development team who will be answering questions throughout the stream. There will be a new Cantina Flare for everyone, along with special giveaways throughout the stream. Again, the Cantina live stream will be held on Twitch TV on October 11th at 3pm Pacific Time. Well, that's it for the news. I now want to get back to my SWOTOR story project. If you recall, earlier this year I started a project where I was attempting to play all eight class stories in the various planetary stories to see if there is an order of play. It's been a while since I've talked about it, but I'm here now with another segment. This time I'm covering a planet where no matter how many times I go there, I find myself getting lost in a maze of walls and obstacles. I'm of course talking about the prison planet of Belsavis. With Belsavis, we're starting to enter the endgame here. There are only two planets left after this, Foss and Corellia. With the story shrinking, you would expect there to be more crossover between each of the class stories and more of an order of play, but so far that hasn't been the case, and Belsavis is no exception. 
In fact, I found navigating the story on Belsavis as difficult as navigating the planet itself. Let's start with the basic premise. The Republic built a secret prison on top of another secret prison that was built by the Rakata ages ago. The Empire has learned of this planet and is now... Well, I'm not quite sure what they're doing. The Empire has plans within plans here. Plan A is for the Emperor to destroy all life on Belsavis, and Plan B is to free the Dread Masters and bolster the Emperor's might in case Plan A fails. Oh, and by the way, unbeknownst to the Empire, there is another plan in motion to destroy all life on Belsavis with something called the World Razor. With this in mind, let's figure out who goes first. And the first place we want to look are the two planetary stories. And by the way, if you ever want to make an argument that Bioware is biased towards the Empire, look no further than the Dreadmaster's story on Belsavis. It's very good. The Republic storyline has to start and end before the Imperial storyline. This is due to Warden Grawl, who appears in both stories. When we first meet Grawl in the Republic story, he is Assistant Warden Grawl until this happens. Seal off the wing! No one gets in or out without my say-so! Kelsa, how, how's the Warden? Dead, sir. Clean shot to the head. I think that makes you the new warden. Uh, I hadn't thought of that. And here he is alive and well at the end of the Republic story. I can't thank you enough for all your contributions. You've done the Republic a real service. Project Noble Focus would still be up and running if you hadn't exposed Senator Tudos and stopped those rat attacking. And here is Grawl at the end of the Imperial story and one of my all-time favorite moments. Take down the Imperials! Secure the Dread... <laughs> how nice to see you. That lump in your throat? It's panic. Think on what will happen next. Show the Republic the true meaning of terror. First, the pupils dilate. Muscles tighten, hysteria replaces rationality, and then... The mind shatters. By the way, there is a wonderful foreboding line from Grawl in the Republic story where he talks about his fate. A neural disruptor? Can they even do that? It's possible, sir. Would incapacitate us all. However, I should be able to recalibrate the security shields to block out its effects. Do it. I don't want to be a twitching, drooling heap when the condemned get here. Grawl replaces Warden Platt, who although his time is short-lived, also appears elsewhere. And when we try to put together a timeline of events, there are some interesting things to note. For example, in the Smuggler story, we discover how the Empire learned of Belsavis. You are a man who prefers action to contemplation. You could not grasp the workings of a machine more ancient than half the stars in our sky. The Empire only found this forgotten world when I called them on the transmitter abandoned millennia ago by the creators of Belsavis. This is actually corroborated by Warden Platt in the Republic story. This facility houses some of the galaxy's most dangerous criminals. It was one of the Republic's best kept secrets until the Empire caught on. Our guards found a subspace transmitter in one of the prison wards. 
crude, but functional. It must have taken decades to scrap together. Blasted thing led the Imperials right to us. They snuck in, sprang the prisoners, and blew open the armories in a single strike. So far, so good, until you get to the Imperial Agent story, when Cypher 9 is briefed on the planet just after he arrives there. We've known of the prison's existence for nearly a year. Now we understand that the conspirators subverted Belsavis to their own use. Now it's entirely possible that Ivory activated the subspace station a year ago, and it took the Empire that long to plan their incursion into the prison. It's also possible that Imperial Intelligence is really good at gathering information and holding on to it until it's needed. My sense, though, is that Ivory activated the substation more recently, and the Empire arrived shortly thereafter. If nothing else, this makes the Smuggler one of the early arrivals to Belsavis, although I think everyone is there at basically the same time. The Bounty Hunter is also another early arrival, as we see Warden Platt make an appearance in her story. Done all we can. If the Imperials want those prisoners, they'll have to crack them out of the tomb. It's out of our hands now. You can evacuate, Warden, but I spent too many years putting those fiends away to let it all be for nothing. Come on, Em. We're heading to the tomb. Now, granted, this is a recorded holocall, and we don't know exactly when it occurred, but my guess is it's either right before the bounty hunter arrives or shortly thereafter. Now, for the most part, the class stories run independent of the two planetary stories and each other. The Trooper, Jedi Knight, Sith Inquisitor, Imperial Agent, and Sith Warrior stories are all self-contained. The Imperial Agent story, though, has some really good stuff that ties more into Knights of the Fallen Empire and also Chapter 2 of the other stories. I'm not going to get into that today. I'll look to cover that next time. What surprised me about Belsavis was the Bounty Hunter story. It's very connected to the planetary story. Early on in the Bounty Hunter story, we learn a lot about the different operations groups who are attempting to free the Dread Masters. My intel says the tomb's been overrun. I can confirm that. Samples were released after Operations Group 1 and 2 forced their way inside, something called Eshkar. Commander Grang is in charge of gaining re-entry to the tomb. He'll be able to give you the current situation. As you heard, there was also mention of the Eshkar. The Jedi Consular story also confirms that the Empire is the one who released them. And remember, the Jedi Consular is there to recruit a faction of the Eshka to fight for her alliance, so she's aware of them as a species before going in. And in fact, if you have the Consular do the planetary story, you get this nice detail in one of the conversations. You'll need to be more specific. What are we dealing with here? Imperials got careless, opened something they shouldn't have, unleashed an entire army on us, some species we've never seen. They're called Eshka. Remnants of a galaxy-spanning civilization predating the Republic. Couldn't play nice and got sentenced here. Permanently. Not all Eshka are violent. Some tried to facilitate a peaceful coexistence with other species. If you say so. I've yet to meet one who wasn't trying to take my head off. I love that the story takes into account some of the other events that might otherwise conflict or seem awkward if they're not acknowledged. Which brings me back to the Bounty Hunter story. On her final mission, the Bounty Hunter has a run-in with Operations Group 1. I am Lord Andreos Thos. We are what remains of Operations Group 1. Have our forces been able to free the Dread Masters? 
The rescue operation's still in progress. At least you've given me a second chance. We're standing on potential reinforcements numbering in the thousands. I must see to their release. Carry on with your business, but stay out of my way. What's interesting about this clip is that when asked if the Dreadmasters have been freed, the answer is no. Now, I didn't do the planetary story in my bounty hunter, but obviously you can, and it's entirely possible that you could free the Dreadmasters before completing your final mission. Both missions occur in the same area. I was curious to see what happens if you free the Dreadmasters and then do your final mission. The short answer is, I'm not 100% sure. I do know that once upon a time, if you freed the Dreadmasters and then completed your Bounty Hunter mission, you would get the dialogue that says they've not been freed. I also know that's kind of sort of a bug. Back in 2012, a player asked about this on the forums, and this was the response from BioWare. There are alternate lines that should be available to you if you freed the Dreadmasters. I suspect that it may be checking to see if you completed the quest to give you those lines, but if you haven't turned the quest in, those checks would fail. In other words, you finish the mission to free the Dreadmasters and then make your way back to the orbital station and turn in the final mission to Commander Callum and then go back and complete your Bounty Hunter mission, which nobody's going to do because it's very inefficient and not intuitive. Players confirmed that's exactly how it works, and Bioware responded by saying, I wouldn't recommend anyone going out of your way to meet the criteria as it's currently implemented, unless that's important to you. Thanks for checking it out regardless. It shows the checks are working, just not ideal for the quest flow, since it encourages doing both quests in one go. I filed a bug report, and hopefully there's a simple solution that will get it working without any player gymnastics. I have no idea if it's been fixed, but I understand that the alternate dialogue is a bit underwhelming, although I've yet to find it. So just an interesting little tidbit there, which highlights one of the other challenges in trying to find an order of play. There are a lot of choices and different outcomes from parts of the story, and unless you track down all of the different conversations, you can't see everything that's in the game. So wrapping up Belsavis, there's no real order of play where the classes are concerned. I think everyone is there around the same time. The Republic story has to start and end before the Imperial story. And I think the Republic story is a little ahead of the Empire the whole way through. Next up is Voss, and I know that several of the class stories are going to intersect there. I'll tell you about that and share my thoughts on if all the classes can and should do the Mystic Trials. Final note for today, the podcasters of SWOTOR are uniting for a big in-game event sometime this November. Myself, UtiniCast, the Passionately Casual Podcast Crew, Bad Feeling Podcast, The Council, Working Class Nerds, The Usual Podcast, and The Escape Podcast are all getting together to do something fun. Time, date, and details will be forthcoming. Big thanks to Marcus from Working Class Nerds and Dr. Swotor, now from the Utini cast, for organizing this whole shindig. And that's the state of the Old Republic for today. Let me cut in the sublight engines and cue the music and congratulate you on surviving another half hour listening to episode 87 of the State of the Old Republic podcast. I'm your host, Ted, and I thank you for tuning in. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, and Buzzsprout. You can also listen to the show directly from the show's site, which is SOTORpodcast.com, 
and there is an RSS feed where you can subscribe to the podcast directly. If you have a question for the show, you can email me at sotorpodcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet your questions to at sotorpodcast or send me a direct message. And be sure to follow me on Twitter to get the latest information on the show. Look for episode 88 soon. Until then, remember the Sith Code. Cake is a lie.